The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. It's Thursday, August 25th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, invented traditions, reimagined visions of the past. History is never free from our present-day biases, but the way we talk about the past often says more about us than the past itself. From the Disneyification of the Middle Ages to the aristocratic invention of Santa Claus in 1800s New York City, let's talk about how pervading myths reveal the values of those who created them and continue to affect us today. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. Historian John Boswell once wrote, It's not possible to write history in a vacuum. No matter how much historians and their readers may wish to avoid contaminating their understanding of the past with the values of the present, they cannot ignore the fact that both writer and reader are inevitably affected by the assumptions and beliefs of the age in which they write and read. End quote. This is a well-accepted fact that historians must grapple with, and most of them do make a valiant effort to both remember that in their scholarship and communicate it with any non-historian audiences. But that doesn't prevent that bias from slipping in. Especially the further you venture from academia into mainstream conceptions of a historical event or era, and then even further into the realm of pop culture. And over time, some of those mainstream conceptions or pop cultural depictions can begin to usurp the presumably closer to reality historical facts. A new exhibit at the Getty Center in Los Angeles shines a light on this phenomenon by examining the changing depictions of the European Middle Ages over the centuries and what those changing depictions say about the people who reimagined them. The exhibition, called The Fantasy of the Middle Ages, will be on display until September 11th and was co-curated by Getty's assistant curator of manuscripts, Larissa Grolamond, and Riverside City College assistant professor of art history, Brian Keane. It features one section devoted to the histories and legends of the era, with a second devoted to the many reinterpretations, everything from 19th century novels to Disney's Sleeping Beauty and HBO's Game of Thrones. Art historian Anne Wallentine recently reviewed the exhibit for Hyperallergic, focusing on this disconnect from what was actually present in documentation from the Middle Ages and how we think of the era now. Quoting Wallentine, The fantastical imagery that many of us consider medieval today has been invented, at least in part, in the centuries since. While some legends are rooted in the period, like the stories of King Arthur and Camelot, many others were embroidered onto an imagined medievalish past through fantasy stories, films, and other forms of popular culture, especially from the 19th century on. Modern medieval tales have become populated with knights, dragons, witches, and fairies, though, as the show explains, only the first two were frequently depicted in the period, and anything magical or mysterious was understood through the lens of religion. 
Much material in the exhibition is drawn from the 19th century, when the Romantic movement created its own version of the Middle Ages in the arts, illustration, and architecture of the Gothic Revival. Their works embodied a Romantic vision of simpler, more straightforward times, and projected Victorian social mores onto the medieval tales of heroism and tragedy. End quote. This pining for a simpler time that may or may not have ever really existed is common to every era, every generation. Y'all never forget a classic Boy Meets World episode in which Corey keeps talking about how his parents had it so much easier as kids in the 50s, only to somehow be transported back to the 1950s himself, where he experiences the relative terror of the Cold War firsthand with duck and cover drills at the 50s cognate of his high school. Or think about how popular 80s nostalgia is, particularly in film and TV right now. You know, so many of us like to dream about a time when our brains hadn't yet been poisoned by social media, forgetting that people then were making the same argument about cable news, heavy metal, video games, and, you know, the actual poisons still prominent then in everyday household objects. But sometimes viewing these previous eras through rose-colored glasses can be taken a step too far when it erases entire populations from the story and adds invented traditions on top of them. This happened a lot in the 19th century. According to Wallentine and this new exhibit, 19th century Europeans were big on mythologizing the Middle Ages. Meanwhile, over in the U.S., we were mythologizing the founding of our nation and its earliest days. Part of this was spurred on by rapid industrialization, creating a nostalgia for simpler, more rustic times when families lived off the land independently. Quoting from Cindy Ott's Pumpkin, the Curious History of an American Icon, The cosmopolitan Harper's Weekly regularly published sentimental and nostalgic vignettes of country life, with its barnyard dances, corn husking parties, and pumpkin harvests, which appealed to middle-class sensibilities. Courier and Ives introduced such images into American homes through inexpensive prints, such as the American Homestead series, which featured quaint farm scenes in every season. These artists and writers were concerned less with presenting the economic realities of American agriculture than with communicating the belief that small-scale, low-tech farms stood for simpler times and a more natural and virtuous existence. As farms began to exist more in the hands of large-scale enterprises than of small ones, and as labor became more the act of machines than of human hands, these antiquated images lived on in popular culture as symbols of American cultural identity. End quote. Beneath the seemingly pure desire for a simpler time, there was, as there often is, a more sinister motivation, because simpler times were rarely simpler for everyone. In the case of the Middle Ages, the West's long insistence on calling the era the Dark Ages and later turning the term medieval into a synonym for primitive thinking belies a belief that following the collapse of the Roman Empire, nothing of any technological, intellectual, or artistic consequence really happened until the Renaissance. As Wallentine writes, referring again to the Getty exhibit, quote, one wall panel addresses the elephant in both rooms. This definition of medieval is, broadly speaking, a Eurocentric framing of the arc of history. 
During the medieval millennium, momentous changes took place on every continent. Art and culture flourished under the Tang and Song dynasties, the city of Teotihuacan declined, and the Aztec Empire ascended. The Islamic Delhi Sultanate established its reign. Yet, in the Euro-American world, the view of the Middle Ages is often narrowed to a slice of northern and western Europe. Even there, it was a period of travel, exploration, and exchange, with fluid borders and interchanging dynasties. There were people with many different racial backgrounds, religious backgrounds, all present in Western Europe, curator Grolemann pointed out. But in the centuries since, a narrow, whitewashed vision of the past has frequently been perpetuated in popular fiction and fantasy versions of the Middle Ages. End quote. Wallentine points out that the rise of 19th century book illustration introduced a new imagined visualization of the Middle Ages, using that Gothic revival aesthetic as a jumping off point and infusing it with Victorian era and colonial worldviews. More supernatural elements, almost entirely white people, simpler, less complicated depictions with less nuance. This is the visual that kept up as retellings continued into the 20th century, with Disney movies like Sleeping Beauty and The Sword in the Stone giving generations of people a certain image in their head of what that era was. We see this too whenever people want to argue about the inherent Americanness or Christianness of certain holidays, citing certain traditions as having always been done this way since the earliest arrival of the pilgrims or the earliest days of the spread of Christianity. But a lot of the holiday traditions were pretty much invented in the 19th century, and often done so with the hopes of upholding a particular worldview or a class of people over others. Thanksgiving, for example. While the general idea of a day to give thanks is ubiquitous throughout many cultures, and yes, the Thanksgiving proclamation was signed by President Lincoln as an attempt to unify a nation at war, some of the myths about the pilgrims and Native Americans coming together in a beautiful, harmonious ceremony were born out of more ideological motivations. Quoting again from Ott, in the early 19th century, Americans celebrated the nation's natural resources and spectacular scenery to compensate for what they feared was a lack of national cultural heritage relative to that of Europeans. And for many Americans, especially in the North, who felt threatened by the influx of new immigrants from abroad, the pilgrims became emblematic of American society and culture. Owners of colonial revival homes and members of the newly formed Daughters of the American Revolution expressed similar passions for establishing ties to their colonial ancestors and their Anglo-Saxon roots. Just decades before, of course, ardent New England patriots such as John Greenleaf Whittier were decidedly ambivalent about the early New England colonists, and few Thanksgiving enthusiasts acknowledged them, which highlights the contrivance of claiming pilgrims as the originators of the holiday and the progenitors of American national identity. By the time of Lincoln's proclamation, historical episodes in which desperate New England colonists stole food from Indians had been replaced with scenes of benevolence and goodwill. End quote. This insecurity about a perceived lack of culture and history compared to Europeans, as well as xenophobia and racism towards growing immigrant populations, also led to the creation of several popular Christmas traditions, and in particular, the invention of Santa Claus as a figure distinct from St. Nicholas. 
Interestingly, one of the figures most active in pushing the bucolic vision of America and Pilgrims as Heroes Thanksgiving narrative was also instrumental in popularizing the Christmas tree as an indoors decoration for families in America, as opposed to its previous life as an outdoor decoration for more adult festivals with a mixing of the social classes and lots of booze. Sarah Josepha Hale was the editor of Gotti's Ladies Book for 40 years in the mid-19th century, and in addition to using it to lobby for a national Thanksgiving holiday, she also repeatedly ran illustrations and recommendations for at-home family Christmas customs, beginning with a cover illustration in 1850 of an all-American family standing around their living room Christmas tree. Only, that illustration was an edit of the original— The original was a depiction of Queen Victoria, Prince Albert, and their children at the Royal Residence, which ran in the Illustrated London News. When Hale ran the illustration in Gaudi's, Victoria's tiara and Albert's sash were edited out so that they looked like down-home Americans. And you can thank this desire by the upper classes to have private holiday celebrations where they didn't have to interact with lower classes for the creation of Santa Claus as well. Influential members of the New York Historical Society were very busy in the early 1800s trying to come up with a way to control all the rowdy youth who took to the streets around the holidays and to assuage their own guilt at not giving to the less fortunate, as had always been the tradition during many high holidays and festivals. The aristocratic members of this group, which included Sleepy Hollow author Washington Irving and Night Before Christmas writer Clement Clark Moore, worked for years to introduce new invented traditions and characters into America's Christmas canon. And while there was some cultural or historical basis for some of their ideas, their new imaginations, like Santa Claus as a working man visiting each home individually on Christmas as opposed to a religious figure casting judgment prior to the holiday, were largely motivated by their ideology and the dominant morals of the time. In the case of Santa Claus, historian Stephen Nissenbaum argues that Moore, whose Night Before Christmas version of Saint Nick set the stage for the American Santa, specifically set out to recast each individual person's children as the metaphorical poor, so that a man could feel he was still fulfilling the spirit of the holiday by giving his children gifts without having to actually contribute anything to the less fortunate, his employees, or society at large. Despite so many of these anachronistic reimaginings, we continue to think of many invented traditions as having been around for much longer, because they were constructed so that we would think so. The harm in this is that invented traditions often sought to erase certain people from the reality of the eras they claim to be based in, and when those invented traditions are believed to be the real traditions, they can be used as the basis to continue oppressing those same people today. Returning to the Middle Ages exhibit at the Getty Center, Wallenstein writes, quote, In the past few years, some white supremacist groups have co-opted medieval symbols and narratives to dangerous and destructive ends. While scholars are working to counter false claims about the past, this can also be achieved in the realm of modern fantasy by diversifying both casting and narratives. Fantasy media can be a tool for countering the very prejudiced and narrow view of the Middle Ages that a lot of people have, Grolemann said. The story is so much more complex. If we can see a more equitable and inclusive medieval world through fantasy, I think that can really affect the way the period is interpreted today. End quote. 
If you are in the Los Angeles area before September 11th, I highly recommend checking out this exhibit. I wish that I could. There is also another exhibit there right now called Reinventing the Americas, Construct, Erase, Repeat, which, quote, questions the mythologies and utopian visions that proliferated after the arrival of Europeans to the continent, end quote. Sounds like a pretty great compliment to the Middle Ages exhibit, if you ask me, and that one will be on display until January. Links to both to learn a little bit more about them, even if you can't visit in person, are in the show notes. Well, in the vein of erasing stories, a little chaser for today's deep dive, it turns out Batgirl will have a few select screenings after all, but only for the cast and crew who worked on it. Warner Brothers' Batgirl is one of the projects killed by the Warner Brothers Discovery merger that has attracted perhaps the most outrage at its cancellation. Starring Leslie Grace as Batgirl and Brendan Fraser as Firefly, with Michael Keaton and J.K. Simmons returning in their roles as Batman and James Gordon, respectively, the movie was highly anticipated by fans and already largely completed with a massive $90 million budget. But according to Collider, quote, Warner Brothers Discovery CEO David Zaslav opted to axe the project in favor of a tax write-down in the hopes of raking in about $3 billion in savings. End quote. Which means not only will we not see a normal theatrical release of the film, but there's a whole bunch of extra legal red tape keeping this movie from probably ever seeing the light of day publicly. But The Hollywood Reporter says cast, crew, representatives, and executives involved with the film are being treated to, tortured by, so-called funeral screenings on the Warner Brothers lot. They'll get a chance to see the film one time before it disappears into a litigious ether. Relatedly, there are also reports that Warner Brothers Discovery doesn't have enough money to release Aquaman in the Lost Kingdom or Shazam! Fury of the Gods on their original release dates. They're being pushed back three and six months respectively in order to spread out the costs of marketing and distribution per consequence. This whole merger keeps sounding like an utter fiasco as more and more properties get shelved or ripped from the HBO Max platform. Warner Brothers Discovery has lost $20 billion in market cap in recent months and has been attracting increasingly poor public opinion. As John Oliver called it on the very platform that hosts his show, quote, It's not TV. It's a series of tax write-offs, end quote. And I mean, he's not wrong. You know, I'm not really sure where things will go from here on a micro Batgirl and existing HBO shows I care about level, but I am particularly curious what, if anything, this portends for the future of TV overall. I guess we'll just have to keep watching you know, for as long as we can. But that is it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.